We're going to be reading together from Luke 12, Luke 12, 13 through 34. Luke 12, 13 through 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Thank you, Vanessa, for reading the passage um, that we have before us. If you're new here or here visiting, um, we welcome, welcome you. Thank you so much for coming. Um, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and um, there have been a number of us that have been taking turns, rotating through the preaching process and it couldn't be more evident that Jesus is leading this church as he continues to use his word to shape and guide us and to teach us. Also, it has been a privilege and a pleasure. Just I've been so encouraged 
to hear the different voices that continue this theme that, uh, of being with Jesus as he's making his way to Jerusalem. Um, <clears throat> difficult passage, um, interesting passage as we um, begin to take a look at it. Um, I want to go back, though, and just catch us up for those of you that may not have had an opportunity to be here for the other passages, um, just so that you can kind of get a framework for where this particular story and how it fits in um, with, where, with what was uh, read this morning. So as Jesus continues to make his way to Jerusalem, Jesus has this ongoing, open conversation with his disciples that are following him and others that are pressing in and coming in to uh, hear the words of Jesus. So it's others also listening in. So you've got this interesting scenario of Jesus teaching his disciples, but then he's teaching it in a way that there are others, many others listening. Two weeks ago, we learned that Jesus was invited to a dinner party as Eric um, taught, and he was the guest of honor. But he was kind of a killjoy. If you understand and listen to the message that was preached um, when Jesus was this guest of honor, he began to expose hypocrisy, teaching that being a hypocrite is sin against God. Jesus continued to speak of hypocrisy with his disciples. You can see that in chapter 12, verse 1, which we learned about last week as we continue making our way forward to this text that we have before us. If you remember, Jesus had exposed for us that hypocrites tend to look righteous and religious on the outside and neglect the heart and character of God. Hypocrites will publicly put on a good show for others to see, but in private, they live a very different life. Hypocrites live secret, dirty lives, doing the very thing in private that God hates. Hypocrites can believe that what is done in secret will always remain a secret. Hypocrites can believe that the private life can easily just go to the grave, and that's the end of it. Jesus taught that his disciples that nothing could be further from the truth. All hypocrisy will be exposed and revealed. Jesus taught that. We learned that as Jared preached that last week. While Jesus is in the middle of teaching his disciples to be on guard against hypocrisy, he has another interruption from someone else listening in the crowd. Jesus, again, does not get sidetracked or caught off guard, but he uses this opportunity to continue teaching those around him. Let's look at verse 13, and we pick up the story there. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What sets up this teaching is that you have two brothers that are not seeing eye to eye on their inheritance. The one brother here speaking up is feeling confident that Jesus will take up his defense and give a ruling in his favor. 
It is interesting, the family's dispute is over inheritance, something that usually one receives after there's been a death. Or one could receive an early inheritance, or one could just be given an early inheritance. We're not told the reasoning for the dispute. There's no indication here who's right or who's wrong. But Luke uses and places this interruption here to teach that there is an inheritance yet to come for everyone. We are immediately drawn into this story because at the heart of humanity, we all want what is fair. We hear this man's story and immediately our hearts are drawn into one side or the other. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Either he should divide the inheritance with him, or we don't know if this man deserves the inheritance. But what we feel in this opening verse is that the man seems to be wanting Jesus to automatically decide against the other brother. This question does not entirely come out of left field. Rabbis were often consulted this way. The man addressing Jesus as teacher may have had a certain respect for him and may believe that he would give a favorable judgment. Jesus chooses, however, not to give a judgment on the matter. He doesn't ask the man anything about the dispute between the brothers. Jesus takes the man's request in a totally different direction. The man came to Jesus, he brought up a real-life scenario, and Jesus asked the man to confess. Who does he believe Jesus is? Let's read verse 14. I'm sorry. Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? In other words, Jesus is saying, if you are truly recognizing me in a position to judge and you believe my judgment will be just. Perfectly aligning with God's law, will you still want me to be judge over you? How tragic it is today that we have so many people coming to Jesus, using him for personal gain, not really wanting his fair judgment of God's law over them. Unfortunately, there are many people believing today in a prosperity gospel. Coming to Jesus so that you can have, dear people, hear this, coming to Jesus so that you can have everything you want now is coming to the wrong Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. We should note that Jesus' refusal to answer is not a denial of his right or ability, nor is it a lack of concern for his social or ethical matters. The context of what's to come teaches that Jesus has a greater concern for this man's eternal position before God. Jesus redirects this man's personal family dispute, which is secondary, to the primary dispute involving an inheritance between people and God. 
That's what's going on here. Let's read verse 15. Look at it, if you will, with me. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So here Jesus takes this opportunity to give a warning against covetousness or greed. You can see that on your title. The man wants his inheritance. Jesus warns against covetousness, the desire to have more or never satisfied. In this context, though, I want you to notice a particular type of greed is seen here by Jesus. Notice the word all covetousness. Why is that in there? And also the word the abundance of his possessions. What's going on? Jesus is teaching that greed or covetousness is not only perhaps by those who don't have and they see others that have and they want what they have, but in this case, they already have and they're not satisfied, they want more. Jesus foresees people using him for personal gain and potentially still, potentially still not satisfied. He warns against all covetousness. The reason for the warning is who you are before God is not defined by what you possess. It's defined by whom you know. Greed, like hypocrisy we saw last week, is sin against God, and people will stand in judgment before God for their greediness. Jesus teaches that the purpose and value of one's life goes far beyond earthly possessions. From God's perspective, earthly possessions will not accompany you to your judgment. At the same time, all forms of covetousness cannot be separated from who you are. In other words, greed, the internal desire to have more, will stand with people in the judgment and will be seen by God as who you actually are claiming to be. People are held accountable for greed, not possessions. Hence the words, take care and be on guard, serves as the warning. Listen to the words in 1 Timothy 6, 5-7, says that there are people who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we bring nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Jesus goes on illustrating with a true-to-life story for a person whose life is filled with pursuing possessions for himself. Let's read verses 16 through 21 as we dive now into the parable. And he told them a parable saying, listen to this parable, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, 
and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Stories are a natural, normal part of communication. This story centers on one's, one man who Jesus does not give a name to, and yet this man stands as a representative for others. What we are told about this man is that he is, and here's where we come where Jesus says, note all covetousness. What we know about this man is that he is already rich, and the land that he possesses yielded and abundance. That's very key to know that he was rich and he got more. He would have been the envy of some or possibly seen as especially blessed by others. His harvest was exceptional, leaving him in a favorable situation. This parable begins here with a completely neutral position before this man's position with God. He has not manipulated any system to receive this plentiful harvest, but he comes face to face with a perfectly natural dilemma. Jesus' story can easily draw one in when as this man's additional wealth has simply fallen into his lap. It is understood that he came by his wealth honestly. Simply God's good provision has blessed him. Verse 17, though, presents the dilemma. What shall I do? The inward reasoning and action steps are seen through to verse 19. Jesus begins to give a hint into this man's problem as we gain insight into this man's reasoning. As the story progresses, the problem is seen in his life by zero treasuring of God. This is picked up on by his words. If you'll look at the words, what shall I do? I have, I will, my barns, my grain, and finally foolishly believing he is the owner of his own soul. Through this story, the man resolved by his own reasoning how to solve his problem. This man has taught, thought all the way through to his retirement by way of expansion and protection of his great success without any direction of what God might have for him. Verse 19 ends with God's critique of believing the widely sought-after dream of finally arrived. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This man's future perspective is entirely self-centered and self-indulgent. Herein lies the problem. This man, representing many, has morally failed in giving acknowledgement to God over his financial success. Covetousness has blinded him to his eternal state before God. Let's read verse 20 again. God says, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In verse 20, Jesus teaches that this man's life has not been lived with the reality of God's 
final sovereign authority over his eternal soul. From God's perspective, this man was a fool and will now give an account that his abundant riches cannot buy his way out of. The summons from God calls for death. Death cannot be cheated, tricked, or ignored. Jesus' point in his question of whose will his possessions belong to means that his wealth has consumed his life and is no longer his greatest concern. By the way, God owns everything already. When people have to come before God, it's ultimately all God's anyway. Suddenly, this man has come into a greater dilemma. Thrust before the presence of God, consumed with what to do with his possession, he failed in knowing what to do with his sins. Reminder, the man in the beginning asked Jesus, could you give a judgment in favor of his inheritance? Jesus is speaking of the reality of another inheritance that is to come for those who continue to pursue greed and selfish possessions. Jesus is speaking of an inheritance of eternal torment in hell for those who live their life in pursuit of treasures for themselves. This is a reality when God says, fool, when God calls someone a fool, they're in deep, deep trouble. The proverbial fool is written all over the Proverbs. Let's read verse 21. So is the one. That means fool is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. How about you? Honestly. We talk about Jesus being our greatest treasure. I would ask you, really, Jesus is giving this man a beautiful parable that possessions can dominate a person's life. I believe that there truly are many. I'm not saying here. Maybe some here. But I believe that in America, in the church today, there are many that have traded the riches and the pleasures and the void of God being their treasure for the sake of Jesus Christ. How about you? Would you truly say that you treasure God above all self? Is that genuinely, evidently seen in all of your reasoning? I want you to understand something in this parable. This man only thought this. He didn't actually even get the chance to do it. He was reasoning within himself according to Christ, and God called him before him even in the way this man was reasoning. Planning out your life without the presence of God and without God being the treasure of your life is foolish. God is teaching this man to this man that simply wants him to divide the inheritance with him. Will you divide the inheritance with me? You know, today we actually have a lot of people really fighting hard over inheritances, over money. 
people will foolishly find themselves in the presence of God. Hebrews 9 says that it is appointed unto man once to die, then judgment. There is no way for people to avoid it. You cannot drown it out with possessions. You cannot escape it. You cannot get around being in front of God. It doesn't matter what people say. We don't buy that. We don't listen to that. The truth of God's word teaches that every person will stand in the presence of God. Hebrews 9 said, is according, It was appointed unto man once to die, then judgment. There's, you don't need to be a, a rocket science to figure that out. We're going to die, and then we're going to be in the presence of God. The question is, what will you have given to reason before God that you can get into His eternal kingdom? If you've been following this passage and this, as Jesus has been continuing to go and make His way to Jerusalem... Um, what you've seen is Jesus has been condemning this person, telling this person, you cannot be my disciple if this, you cannot this, you cannot that. What Jesus has been doing is closing the gate down for entrance into eternity. Ultimately, what we will see is it will find itself only in the one man, Jesus Christ, that is put forward. That's it. That's our only hope that we have is in Christ Jesus. That's why, church, we sing about Christ. We treasure Christ. We love Christ. And Lord willing, this church will never deviate from turning our eyes off of the only one that matters for all of us. That is Jesus Christ. I want to be clear about what I am not saying. The parable in no way condemns planning or wealth. Please understand that. We praise God for those He graciously blesses and pours out with finances. There are many here in this church that have been the recipients of God's blessing in others' lives. As We praise God for those as well as for those who are very wise in planning with the future. That's not the point of the parable. The parable is spoken against the person who takes wealth, totally directs it towards themselves, and is selfishly motivated in all that they do, void of treasuring God. Verse 21 is how Jesus applies what he just taught. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God generously gives to some people on earth, but his judgment awaits for anyone who does not find God himself as their greatest treasure. Truly, what do you talk about most? When we come into this next portion of Scripture, as I kept looking at it and looking at it and looking at it, it seemed very odd. What you have is the word therefore. This is why we didn't stop the passage in the, the uh, parable. The word therefore connects what Jesus is saying before into this next section of how he is talking to his disciples. I want you to get a hold of this. And please see these as this story continues. Again, this, this man asked this question that came directly out of left field for Jesus. Didn't catch him off guard. He used this as an opportunity then to move out of hypocrisy and move into covetousness. 
Can I tell you lovingly that Christians can be in danger of also doing the same thing of coveting possessions? Let me tell you what I mean. This next section is laid directly up against the fool who was coveting and living his life void of the treasuring God. Now let me explain something to you. This man was already rich. This man already had everything. This man didn't need this additional wealth that fell into his lap. Please hear this out. This is exactly how some Christians can be. You are already rich in God. For those of you who are here and have been converted in the heart of God, you are already wealthy beyond your wildest dreams before God. And sometimes as Christians, we can live as if we still don't have it. We still need more. There are other things outside of God that can fulfill our dreams, fulfill our fantasies, fulfill things inside of our life that are just a flat lie. They're not true. God teaches us that don't be like this fool as a Christian. Look at the, look at the words of the next verse, wherever we're at. He turns to his disciples and he says, Now therefore... Well, therefore what? Therefore, because that's not you at all. You don't have to grovel down in the things of the world and fish and, and demonstrate to others as if you're not wealthy. In Christ, you have everything if you're a Christian. There is a massive difference between the, the parable and what Jesus comes into and his disciples. This is for Christians only. Those whom God has done a divine work in the heart, brought them through repentance, brought them through the blood of Jesus, pinned their faith to Christ, and now they stand complete in Jesus Christ. This, when we move into this next one, and you see the, the care that God has for you, the knowledge that He has of you, the control He has over you, when you see these, if you are not a Christian, these are not for you. I don't even know where I was at. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you put on. In the light of reminding people of the dangers of greed, that people aren't actually the owners of their own souls. Jesus now turns his attention to his disciples and pastorally, and I love this. Dear Christian, I hope, I hope that you will feel the heart of God, that he loves you. As he pastorally turns to his disciples and tells them, don't allow anxiety to rule over your life. Listen, I know that I need to tread carefully here because I know that there are people in this church that are genuinely converted Christians that struggle with anxiety. This passage is laid here, I believe, because Jesus knows that his disciples will struggle with anxiety. That's a real thing. He gives two examples that can cause anxiety, and I love, I didn't put, I didn't tell Josiah what to pray. He already knew what to pray. He, God is lead, the one leading this church, and I love it how God has put together 
all the way that um, that this whole message and and all that we're doing um, as we corporately gather together, God is putting it all together. He gives two examples that can cause anxiety. It comes down to the basic necessities of life, food and clothing. Ultimately, what Jesus is speaking of is an anxiety over food and clothing as a way of self-preservation. You can feel by the way Jesus is speaking here that his disciples, that first of all, God's will for his children is not to be anxious for life and body, uh, for the, what the body is. It's clearly indicated to us that Jesus would anticipate his followers struggling with anxiety. This exhortation sets up God's counsel for anxiety and guarding against competition in the life of a believer. First in verse 23, Jesus gives a reason for all, for his call not to worry by reminding them of the important truth. He says life and body are more than food and clothing. I would say that what Jesus is saying is that in the heart and life of his disciples that nothing should compete or be in competition with him. Nothing. If you're here and yourself, you find yourself focused on the things of, of this world and this earth, I hope that you'll feel that God has no intention for these things to compete with the value and the love and the affection of him and his life. They don't hold the same value. Good biblical counseling on anxiety begins, first of all, with moving the focus off of the temporal and moving it, turning the attention onto the eternal. In verse 23, with just a few words, Jesus teaches that one's life and body hold a far higher value than, than what one eats or puts on. First Samuel 16, 7 says that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus' counsel to his followers here on anxiety is laid right up against a fool who only has really focused on his best life now, perhaps in preparing for his worst life later. Anxiety over the lesser reveals a deficiency in the value of trusting God. In verse 24, Jesus uses an example of God's love and care for birds that have no ability to produce or set aside their food that keeps them alive. The birds are completely dependent upon God and God graciously feeds them. What a beautiful promise. Let's read verse 24 together. <clears throat> Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? From God's perspective, dear Christian, Jesus tells his disciples that they are of far greater value than the birds being fed and so are you. Jesus uses the carefree example of the birds in relation to God's ability to feed them to teach his children that we are no longer enslaved to anxiety over how we will eat. Dear Christian, have you truly ever really considered the care that God has for you? Verses 25 and 26 show our second reasoning that Jesus gives to be free from anxiety. Jesus teaches that anxiety can come from a false illusion that you are actually in charge of your life. 
specifically here, how long you will live. As the parable of the fool, it was cut short while he was in thought of how he's planned his life out. Let's read verses 25 and 26. Follow with me. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of span to your life? I want you to really think about that question that Jesus is asking. If you then are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Jesus combats anxiety with the sovereign power of God. And of course, the answer to his question found in verse 25 is that no one can. He states that clearly in verse 26. Jesus declares that adding to one span of life is a small thing for God. He counsels his children, if you can't honestly do as small a thing as that, but extend your life by one hour, then why do you worry about something even smaller in the rest of life about basic needs? I want to clarify at this time, again, that Jesus is not teaching against our responsibility to work. That would be contrary. It is responsibility coupled with trust. Ultimately, it's trusting. The point I believe Jesus is making, that anxiety is not to rule or govern our lives who are in the omnipotent, sovereign hand of God. We are called to trust God in the beauty of His sovereign control. How long we will or will not live is in His hands. Have you ever considered God's view of how beautiful you are, dear Christian. I know that this might grate against some. You don't want to be any focus on yourself. Can I tell you what? Let me make sure that I'm clear. When a person is clothed in Jesus, because God finds Jesus beautiful, you who are clothed in Christ are absolutely astonishing to God. I believe that people's anxiety comes from how they feel. And can I lovingly tell you that Jesus is telling his disciples as well as us, if you are clothed in Christ, you need to hear this. You are beautiful just the way you are to God. Let's read verses 27 and 28. Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Eric Odegaard touched on this uh, a few messages back. He talked about the beautiful way that God sees you. Everything that God does, he does well. The heart of this statement is Jesus counseling his children with the creativity of God's sheer beauty that he finds in you. The comparative beauty that is seen here is the picturing of a beautiful grassy field adorned with the astonishing wildflowers or lilies of beauty and color that are absolutely breathtaking. First, Jesus states that this breathtaking scene with these lilies didn't labor to grow themselves. That's the toil. 
nor were they involved in how they made themselves. That's, they didn't spin thread themselves. They didn't make themselves. You were not selected because of your own beauty. God did not look at you and how you were dressed and decide, oh my goodness, you've got to be in my field. God is perfect within himself and is in need of nothing to bring him beauty. You cannot add to God's beauty in and of yourself. But what Jesus is saying here is that God has chosen to showcase his glory and beauty by his new creation in you, that is Christ Jesus. Just as God was intentional in creating these flowers to adorn the grassy field, he is just as intentional about creating the beauty of himself in you when you trust him. Solomon, with all his resources, couldn't come close to duplicating God's creativity in you. Jesus is pointing these words for his disciple as well as us. A regard of what anyone thinks of you, if you're a child of his, imagine the most beautiful, breathtaking scene in your mind that you can imagine, and you are to know that you are far more beautiful to God than you can imagine. Even your best imagination will be temporal. That's alive today, thrown in the oven tomorrow. That is temporary. You can replace anxiety with the understanding that you are more beautiful to God than you can ever imagine. The reason is, as a true Christian, God has clothed you with himself and you are eternal. When a person is taught by God himself how they are valued and beautiful to him, food and drink and worry and how will I survive and let me covet this and everything that can, you can imagine begin to fade away, replaced by faith and trust in this endless love and care for you. We can trust that we can best glorify God just the way he wants us to by trusting that he will clothe and feed us the way he wants to. Our food and clothing are from him. Let's look at verses uh, 29 through 31 as we continue making our way through here. <clears throat> and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. As Christians, we have been called out of the world. The world stoops down and grapples after these things, never satisfied. We are to know and to trust that God's memory will never slip in knowing what our needs are. In verse 31, God gives his children replacement counsel. It says, now he moves into seeking. Instead, seek his kingdom. So instead of anxiety, we are to seek his kingdom. And these things in context Food and clothing will be provided to you by God's knowledge. That is not the way the world operates today. They do not believe that. They do not see that. They do not believe putting God first. Seeking God first to the world's is foolish. God says for his children, seek his kingdom. If you're here and you're struggling with anxiety, I would ask you truly, are you seeking him first? Are you seeking his kingdom? You might think that sounds foolish. I can't do that. Do you understand the situation, the real life situation that is in front of me right now? 
God has already told you here, he knows all things. He knows everything. He absolutely does. In other words, have an eternal mindset of the love, the value, and the beauty that God has for those who are in Christ and trust his provision for you. Your father knows and is fully aware of the necessities of life. Trust that God will supply your needs according to his will. Let's look at verse 32. Fear not, little flock. I love when Jesus gets to this point. This is an amazing promise. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 32 should be an amazing understanding of how God relates to his people and reassuring them of his promise. His people gives him trust in this temporal life and he is pleased to reward them with the eternal kingdom in the life to come. Part of the character that describes God is his continual giving to his followers that which they do not deserve. You know what, dear Christian? God will never take away the kingdom from you. That's guaranteed hope for you to continue to live. Part of the character that describes God is his continual giving to his followers. Look at God's words that describe us. We are fearful and small. It's amazing God knows already our state before him. In the grand scheme of the world, God's genuine people are by far lesser in value and beauty, and yet we will see later in Luke, we are also smaller in numbers, and yet we are to be the most visible seen in God's provision, treasuring God himself. God knows our fragile state, but Jesus' exhortation to continue giving to God our allegiance of trust with our life and bodies comes with a promised reminder from him that he plans to give you the eternal kingdom of God. This gives us a picture of heaven on earth in verse 33. Let's read it. <clears throat> so sell your possessions. So in light of all that Jesus has said, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that do not go old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. As Christians, we are to spend heaven's money freely. God calls his children to hold loosely our possessions and be willing, moved by the Spirit, to have a heart that gives to those in need. The more one trusts in God for their needs, that tends to loosen the grip that we have on life or possessions. Anxiety will soon slip away as trust incre increases. A Christian's generosity is a measure of faith. The more you treasure God, the, less, the lesser the grip gets. You can believe that what you genuinely treasure about Jesus will never wear out. It will always be pleasing to God, and it is eternally secure. Let's read verse 34. Jesus finishes with, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What you value most in life is truly who you are. By God's grand design, people cannot separate who they what they value most from who they are. Can't do it. I hope, dear Christian, that you find total pleasure in Christ that leads to a generosity in helping others which is totally opposite of the world. If you are here and struggling with anxiety, would you please remember the care that God has for you, the control that God has over you, 
the beauty that God sees in you, the knowledge that God has about you, and the promise God has in store for you. If you are wondering, what makes the difference between the fool who is pursuing his riches and treasures of this earth and the disciple that can truly follow Jesus. What makes the difference is salvation. Being rescued by God. Can I lovingly tell you, every single person here has already failed God's law by coveting things that we should not have. Even worse, we have already not treasured God the way God deserves to be treasured. We have all failed that. Can I lovingly tell you, if you're here and you're wondering which side of the kingdom I'm on, can I tell you that Jesus, Jesus is the only person who was perfectly able to fulfill God's law of treasuring God himself alone perfectly. Jesus then is making his way to Jerusalem. He is making his way to be crucified on a cross where he will make payment for sins that he did not commit. What makes the difference between a person being one that is pursuing and chasing treasures and the one that can truly trust God for all things of how they will be is salvation. Jesus Christ stood before God. He paid the penalty. He accepted and received the wrath of God as God poured it out on his son for sins that he did not commit. Jesus died. He then, three days later, was resurrected by the power of God, demonstrating his victory over sin for humanity. The way that a person comes into a saving relationship with God is that God looks upon humanity. He sees out across all of humanity that all have sinned, all have failed, all are broken, all have committed uh, sins against God's covenant, His laws, His commands, His statutes, His heart, everything. And God then says, I need one that I can punish to the, be a sacrifice in my place. So He sent His only Son. His Son lived a perfect life for 33 years. Jesus stood before God, received the wrath, died and was resurrected. The request, the requirement that is placed before mankind is repent from who you are and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the only hope for a person to gain access into God, into this eternity, to gain access to have this eternal kingdom. Otherwise, what will be told to you is, you fool, your soul is required of you. Dear person, I hope that this has not spoke to you. 
I hope that this will not be the words that you will hear when you stand before God. If you're here and you're a Christian, receive these words as encouragement that Jesus Christ has done everything for you and that you are called by this passage to treasure Jesus Christ. Think about your life above everything. I hope that that will truly be your hope and your promise that you're standing on. This um, will be a time that we transition now into our Lord's table. This, is, this Lord's table is a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. Um, this will be um, our time for Christians only to come forward and to receive the bread and the juice as we partake corporately as of the Lord's table together. So if you're here and you're waffling, you don't know if you're a Christian, my heart and hope and prayer for you is that you will truly evaluate your life and know that when you stand before God, what you do, not your possessions, not your greed, not anything, what you do actually matters. You will stand before God with, a, with greed and covetousness. And that sin has been dealt with on Jesus on the cross. And I hope that you have repented and turned and that you have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ for sins of covetousness and not treasuring God. So um, if you'll stand with me for those that are here and um, are, you don't have to be part of Cross Fellowship Church um, to receive the Lord's table simply if you're a Christian and you've truly come to saving faith in Jesus Christ because of God's divine uh, work in your heart, then this table is open for you. We hope that, um, that you will joyfully come and receive this as gratitude, hearts of gratitude of desiring to express the treasure that we have in Jesus.